Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. At the recent Winter Olympics in Beijing, Presidents Xi and Putin did more than admire the latest ice dance moves. They held extensive talks about the state of the world and about their relationship. When they finished, they declared that friendship between China and Russia, quote, has no limits, unquote, and that, again, a quote, there are no forbidden areas of cooperation. No limits undoubtedly extended to discussing Russian plans to invade Ukraine, as well as China's willingness to provide diplomatic and economic support, maybe more, uh, when the promised Western sanctions kicked in. Why did Xi apparently greenlight Putin's war? What does China potentially gain from war in Europe? How far are they prepared to go to support Russia? How does war fit into China's long-term strategy? Did Xi make a mistake? Almost a year ago, Jonathan Ward shared with us his thinking about China's vision of victory, which was also the title of a book he had recently published. I've asked him back to discuss what Putin's war means for China and for competition between China and the United States. Welcome, Jonathan, and thank you for the return engagement. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be with you. Let's start at 60,000 feet. How does this war fit into Xi's strategy to dominate the global economy and create a new model, a new Chinese-run model of international relations? Well, first of all, I think if we look at the bigger picture here, China has a series of strategic partnerships that they use both for economic purposes, but also for geopolitical purposes. If we think about, for example, China's deep relationship with Pakistan and what that allows them to do vis-a-vis India to create trouble and tension and um, to, to essentially challenge India geopolitically by um, supporting their primary adversary. I think something is going on very similar here when it comes to Russia and the United States. I mean, Russia is, um, you know, a, a large scale antagonist. I mean, one whose uh, shadow sort of falls across the whole of Europe and therefore the transatlantic, um, you know, strategic relationship and, and in many ways defines all of that. And for China to be their primary backer, as they've made unequivocally clear in uh, recent you know, joint declarations, and certainly in the um, rise of the Russia-China relationship that's been, um, I think, underway in a very robust sense over the past 10 years or so, militarily, diplomatically, economically, all of the above. Very, um, you know, sort of broad partnership they've built at this point. For China to be able to push on Europe and push on the United States um, while acting in the interests of a global strategy that ultimately leads to their preeminence in the international system. I mean, it's really a matter of, of um, getting us all tied down in another theater to distract us as they um, you know, push their interests in, in, in Asia. So, so the two are mutually supportive in that sense. They've made that very clear. Um, and in many ways, it goes back to the original intentions of the Sino-Soviet alliance in the 1950s. Um, and the current war, I think, is very reminiscent of the first product of that alliance, which was the Korean War. So everyone's trying to figure out, as I already asked, did Xi make a mistake? Are the Chinese surprised by what's happened? To me, a lot of what Chinese diplomacy is about, and I think we see that in the current 
um, crisis is um, being sure to provide that sort of front to the West, especially that says, look, we, we can engage with you. You can do business with us diplomatically. You know, we're rational actors, you know, don't forget to, um, you know, sort of continue to engage. And that's that's the other half of their strategy is to, to make sure that they have economic relations with Europe and the United States to make sure that they're able to siphon technology and capital into their system to support their rise. But on the other hand, you know, they are supporting very much um, the, the, the objective of overturning the U.S. and Western-led international order, you know, pushing back against the democracies in Asia and around the world. Um, so they're you know, capacity to play both sides of this um, really shouldn't be lost on us, and I, th- I think it'd be very unfortunate if we if we fall for that in the same way that you know they've they've been very successful. I think at um, you know playing the international community for fools, whether it comes to the Hong Kong agreement, which was torn up and thrown out, you know, their promises not to militarize the South China Sea, their promises not to, um, you know, uh, conduct cyber espionage against the United States. The list is very long at this point, and I think we shouldn't be deceived by that. Um, A lot of that, I think, is is just simply the tactics of providing fodder to the international community to treat them as, um, you know, to give them that latitude to, to play both sides. So to be precise, we're a few weeks into this war. Do you see anything that suggests to you as someone who watches this very closely that China is having what someone called the other day buyer's remorse, that they wish they hadn't agreed to let loose the dogs of war? I think at the end of the day, the, the, what we've been furnished with here is some, some pretty important strategic documents. I mean, this joint statement in the Olympics, which first of all, isn't the first of its kind. I mean, there have been these kind of partnership documents and meetings uh, going on for 10 years now. So, so to, um, you know, look at that in context, I mean, it's not just um, a sudden revelation. I mean, it's also something that's part of a series, but it is not a superficial document. I mean, this is something that has a deep philosophical alignment in the two worldviews um, between Moscow and Beijing at this point. I mean, they're essentially aligned um, for the purpose of, of being anti-American, anti-Western, for overturning the post-Second uh, World War order um, for basically quite explicitly talks about the second about the world order and what's wrong with it and what needs to be done differently. Right, and I think that's the moment that we are that we're in right now. I mean it's 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 even broader than Ukraine. I mean you have two powers for the first time in a sense since, since the second world war working together to overturn what they see as humiliations of their respective destinies as nation states. I mean, that's the language that they are essentially using. In China's case, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And then in Putin's case, this entire view of history that says he's going to put back together, you know, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and the Russians who are all part of greater Rus. And, you know, these are views of history that are coming into alignment that are built on the idea that they've been humiliated essentially in the post-Cold War period for China goes back further than that. Um, And that they're now going to work together strategically to overturn the world as it is. So, so in that sense, I think buyer's remorse, um, you know, we shouldn't confuse the present conflict for the deeper, um, you know, strategic contest that we're in with these two countries, and one in which they are very firmly aligned on the part that's about pressing against the West and our allies. Do you think the war in Ukraine has any implications for China's view of Taiwan? Well, it certainly does. And I, I, th- I think plenty of people have talked about this in depth, but um, I'd say there are a few important things. I mean, one, um, 
the the you know Beijing gets to witness what it's like for a large economy, not as large as they are, but certainly larger than Iran or North Korea, to be um, to bear the the full brunt of Western economic warfare. The other side of that, of course, is that I think um, the Western alliance just grew in leaps and bounds in terms of our capability um, to 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 sort of plan and execute economic warfare in a globalized economy. So that is, I think, very relevant um, for for Beijing's calculations. The other side, of course, is the Ukrainians themselves who've put a valiant effort into fighting the Russian uh, invasion and have been, you know, successful. I think beyond the expectations of the world. Um, thus far in their resistance to Putin. Um, you know, the, the battlefield losses that the Russians are taking and the, the disruption of their apparent operational planning and all of that, I think should also um, give pause to Beijing. Because again, something like Taiwan could be very, very, very costly for them. And it's the job of allied deterrence to make sure that they understand that both the full potential force of sanctions and the um, excision from the world economy, as has happened to Russia, and also the potential to simply lose this war or have it be too costly uh, to prosecute for long. So each of those systems, Russia and China, each one will respond differently to something like this in terms of what it means for um, the regime in charge and their broader strategic planning. But I think both theaters are very connected. It's not just the Russia-China partnership that connects them. It's the fact that we have been in a position for at least a decade now where we've had to think about deterrence in Europe and in Asia. Um, so, so we can learn lessons here, too, that can raise the cost for Beijing. One of my friends, David Andelman, wrote a book about red lines, published a book about red lines recently. Do you think Xi has any red lines in the sense of either things that Putin must not do? or conversely, things that the West must not do to either Russia or China? And then I get to sanctions specifically. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, obviously, we all probably wish we could see directly into um, how that works when, when they're thinking or strategizing together, or even what they're withholding from each other. Because, um, you know, as we also should understand, um, even though these two, you know, Russia and China are aligned now, um, there are some fundamental weaknesses to this um, alliance. You know, they've been enemies in the past in the Cold War and, 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 you know, in pretty substantial ways. So there's going to be a limit to what they're willing to probably share with each other. And I think part of it is, um, I imagine Beijing is, is quite willing to, in, in, you know, in a way that's reminiscent of what Joseph Stalin told Mao Zedong when the Korean War began. He said, you know, go ahead and do this in Asia. If you get kicked in the teeth, I won't lift a finger, end quote. Um, so I think there's a bit of that going on here. Um, you know, I, I don't think they were unaware of, of what Putin was planning to do. I think that that would be, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't assume that. I mean, they, the troops were massed on the border uh, when this statement was issued. And at the same time, I think they are fully willing to watch their partner, um, you know, get, get in deep trouble, partly because the result at the end of this is that um, China has Russia in a very very dependent position now economically. Um, so with Putin essentially destroying his relations um, with the Western world and the world economy, and then having only China to rely on, um, he now winds up in a position much more like Pakistan and its dependency on China. And for China to acquire a state of Russia's size in this way is, um, I think, very dangerous for the United States and for Europe, and also um, obviously a 
a, a very foolish outcome for, for Russia. Let's segue to tactics and very specifically the link, which is sanctions. U.S. officials have loudly and publicly insisted that China will not be allowed, which I thought was an amazing word, uh, to provide support, military equipment specifically is being talked about in that context to China and more generally to violate American sanctions. That would be a huge shift in American policy because we have looked the other way as China has violated up, down, and sideways sanctions on Iran, on North Korea, you name it. I don't quite know how to ask this, but there's two questions there. Do you think the U.S. should confront China on its support for Russia? And do you think the U.S. can effectively do so? And I'm still thinking, I still, in the back of my mind, I still have red lines as a well, I think the United States has been in a process of awakening to the challenge posed by China. I mean, at this point, it's been it's very widely understood in governments in both parties. Um, I think it's not yet truly understood in the business and finance community. Um, but in terms of U.S. national security and U.S. government, I think people are, are very focused on this. And we've been in a process of gradually imposing sanctions on China, you know, export controls, um, investment bans, you know, very, Huawei, I think is a, is a very famous case at this point. Um, but we have much, much farther to go. And yes, we must do that. Ultimately, the contest with China, I believe, will be won or lost in terms of total economic power. I mean, even if we think back to military contests in the 20th century, I mean, it was America's uh, raw industrial power uh, that allowed us to prevail in the Second World War to to become the to be the arsenal of democracy. And you know, when we were attacked by Japan, we were ten times their size economically. Um, today, we're running, I think, a much more dangerous game when we have the People's Republic of China as a comparable sized economy with an industrial capacity that at this point has made them the workshop of the world and the centerpiece of many critical supply chains. So all of that has to be sorted out. And that has to be the fundamental basis of U.S. grand strategy towards China, not only military deterrence, um, but the rebuilding of the U.S. industrial base and supply chains and bringing um you know, the allied world into an economic community that can um, make sure to not depend on adversary states um, and to make sure that we have preponderant economic and military power when dealing with this challenge from both Russia and China. So, so there's a long way to go in all of that. I think ex- economic warfare is part of this. Economic containment is another side. And then the economic revitalization of the United States and the global um, democratic alliance system. Um, we all have that to do in front of us. And, and in the meantime, I think the U.S.-China economic relationship is, um, you know, we have walked well off the short pier uh, when it comes to how dangerous is, how foolish was it to, um, you know, build in these dependencies. And I think people learned that during the pandemic when it came to, um, you know, uh, critical medical equipment. I think we're we understand that pretty deeply when it comes to rare earths. Um, and also, frankly, the trading relationship that um, creates a capital account that allows them to finance essentially a military buildup, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen um, in, in probably 50 years. So um, all of that remains to be done, all the big strategic work where we and our allies must come together and win an economic competition, maintain deterrence in both Europe and Asia, and I mean beyond the current conflict, but the expansion and potential expansion of these conflicts. I mean, China is a place that has um, even more um, territorial ambitions than Russia uh, by some measures. I mean, they're active 
contests in the South and East China Sea, their claims to Taiwan, their claims in the Himalayas, um, you know, it gets pretty broad and they've built a military that's designed for all of that. So uh, we have much work to do. And I think um, we're going to see the, the um, I think the, 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 the central requirement of economic, um, you know, strategic economics, economic strategy as, as a fundamental piece of um, American and allied grand strategy. That is really, um, we need to get so good at that. Um, and we can, we can do this. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasen Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. What do you think, though, the reaction in Beijing is to being told that we are shifting gears with regard to our relationship with you? We are going to enforce sanctions. You are not going to be allowed to support your ally. Will they confront us? Will they acquiesce? What's your guess? I think this is where the real depth um, and and sort of philosophical and strategic underpinnings of the Russia-China relationship actually matter. I mean, this relationship is built to withstand um, pressure from the United States and the allies. I mean, Beijing has been preparing for many, many years for um, conflict with the U.S. I mean, military, economic, diplomatic, I mean, the worldview is, is fundamentally one that takes America as the primary enemy, even though we brought them into the world economy, into the WTO, basically rolled out the red carpet um, in all the modern institutions. And that's those, those um, decisions will, will have their own um, hearing in history. But um, in any case, um, Beijing's strategy towards us is, is far um, deeper and, and, and more longstanding than ours towards them uh, when it comes to competition and confrontation. So I think that is part of why this Russia-China relationship is, is likely to last in the, in the near term. In the long term, it's a different story. But in the near term, um, they are, they've made absolutely clear they intend to support each other. Um, you know, they, they understand, I think, um, at least some level of the effects that the U.S. and allies can bring to bear against each of these two countries. And, and I think that's where the relationship really has its um, depth and purpose, is, is the ability to I mean, they've already said, um, you know, Chinese diplomats have already said they'll retaliate, you know, if we, um, you know, impose sanctions on them. And, and that's already been the truth. I mean, they've, um, they, they sanction and harass Western companies on a regular basis. I mean, they, they um, sanction in their own way, uh, individuals in, in American governments and also in European governments. So we're already dealing with this. And I think that the entire Russia-China relationship in both cases is really an expression that they expect all of that to get worse. And um, we know, I think, just by observing their grand strategy, the timeframes that they have in mind, I mean, the, the, the general trajectory of this and the fact that um, they know that they're going to go through um, a period in which their contest with America is not simply a matter of words or diplomacy or economic um, competition. So, so, so we're preparing for something. I think we're in something that's on a, 
a much bigger scale. I mean, a contest for power in this way is is uh, going to be transformative to the world, and each side is going to pick um, partners that can provide depth in that contest. And that's why Russia and China have come together. And if I may distill that answer to my own question, China almost certainly doubles down on this relationship. This is They're not about to back off and say, oh my God, it was a mistake. We didn't expect you to push back. I think that they are going to be sure to play the diplomatic game of appealing to the international community in ways that I think are not truthful. And then they're also going to play the strategic game of um, supporting their strategic partner. And let's not forget, I mean, earlier this year, uh, Xi Jinping was welcomed at, at Davos at the World Economic Forum with his vision for the world economy. So that's a card that they always want to play too. Um, their ability to to go on the world stage and attract investment and do all the rest of that. Um, I think it'd be wiser to see through all of that. Um, but, you know, they've been very successful at leading, um, leading on the Western and international audience. Let me go back to the Putin G communique from Beijing, from the Beijing Olympics. There's all sorts of words in that uh, communique about the new world order that they envision. But in some ways, to me, it sounded very much old school. It, it's not a globalized world, we're all in it together kind of world. It's a newly drawn world where great powers respect spheres of influence. They don't export cultures or values. Very different from the kind of world that President Biden talked about at his summit for the democracies. Very different from the kind of world that saw so many countries vote against Russia on, in the General Assembly. There really are two very different visions bubbling up. I must say, as we sit here in March of 2022, if we were going to do a nose count, I'm not sure how many countries are signing on to which of those, to which of those different models. Does Ukraine, the war, however it ends, and it will end obviously even more bloodily than it has evolved so far, does that conflict in Ukraine affect how that competition between these two sets of values unfold? Well, I think it does, because I think we've seen um, the brutality of these two um, actors in motion. I mean, there's a reason that all of this matters in my mind, and that is it does have to do with the fundamental values of human rights and freedom. I mean, that at the end of the day is what the free world stands for and fights for. And I think it's the, the longstanding arc of what we fundamentally do and are at our best. And I think we all can appreciate that that's the purpose of the democratic union, so to speak. I mean, all of us together, however it is that we may stand together. I mean, we do stand for certain things and we stand against others. And this comes in the context of an ongoing genocide inside China, of the destruction of Hong Kong, essentially, and its freedom, you know, and, and, and movement. I mean, there, I mean, these are these are the, the the real manifestations of of the power of Beijing in one hand, and then Ukraine and the destruction of Ukrainian cities um, at this point is is a manifestation of of what you know Putinism is. So so for those two forces to emerge on the world stage, um, you know I think I think for those of us that have studied them carefully and understand these two countries, it's not a giant surprise. But I think for the broader you know, aspiration of an international community that that doesn't that isn't defined by those things. I think many people were surprised by this, and that really should, if anything, strengthen our resolve to make sure 
that these kinds of places do not prevail. I mean, we're going to have to find our own voice and our own purpose in all of this. And, um, and to be sure that the, the world that Moscow and Beijing uh, seek is, is not, um, you know, never comes to pass. I mean, for China's vision of victory to actually happen, I think, I mean, that's um, an unacceptable outcome. Um, and I think that it's worth noting here in a more technical sense, um, you know, if one does a, a good close reading of the um, joint statement at the Olympics between Russia and China, which, which I would recommend doing, um, I, one thing stood out to me that was very interesting. And that was, um, they each talk about their sort of end state. And, you know, China, as, as we know, has this vision of the community of common destiny for mankind, where basically everything is culminated, the Belt and Road, the, you know, great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, all of these different sub-programs result in a world where China's the economic and military center of the world system. And they call that the community of common destiny. Now for Russia, there's something, um, you know, they essentially aspire to a sphere of influence system with, in a multipolar world. But in this um, document, it says here that the Russian side notes the significance of the concept of constructing a community of common destiny for mankind proposed by the Chinese side to ensure greater solidarity in the international community, etc. The Chinese side notes the significance of the efforts taken by the Russian side to establish a just multipolar system of international relations. Now, this phrase, notes the significance of, says, we do not mutually aspire to this. We just recognize that the other side does. So you can see that already the end state here that China envisions and the end state that Russia envisions, that's the part that they do not agree on. So at the end of the day, they're contesting the United States, they're contesting the West, they're probing Europe and Asia in, in a mutually supportive way, but not for the same ultimate ends. China wishes to rule the international system. Russia wishes to have a greater role in it. And I think that's where this all gets very interesting in the long term, because you know they're not trying to get to the same place. They're just trying to use each other to get a little more of what they want. I hate to end on a negative note, but as Keynes famously remarked, we are all dead in the long run. At the rate they're going, a lot of us might be dead in the short run. I guess the question, final question, looking for a ray of optimism here is perhaps to pull on the, the thread that you mentioned, that perhaps a lot of people in a lot of places are waking up to a reality, to a sense of what is really going on in Russia, in China, and that that could rejuvenate the West, rejuvenate Western democracies, value-based government, etc. Well, I, I think, Alan, there's, there's no need to end in a pessimistic way, because at the end of the day, in my mind, this is the world and, um, you know, it's life's important work to ensure that things like this, do, that, that places like these do not prevail. I mean, I think that the free world has done amazing things in its history. I mean, through our, um, you know, our, our solidarity with one another when we can get there, I mean, through our values and ideals. And, um, you know, the example of, of Zelensky right now, I think, speaks to the whole of humanity in a way that we haven't seen in quite a long time. And just, I do believe we're seeing the first, you know, great hero of the 21st century's contest between democracies and autocracies. And, you know, this is a contest that will define, I think, the life's work of many of us. And, and with that said, there is good and important work to be done because of all this. And hopefully we will rise to that occasion.
Thank you, Jonathan. I suspect that this is one of those issues we are going to parse for years to come, trying both to understand what happened, why it happened, but far more importantly, what we do about it uh, in order that we in the West are able to continue to enjoy peace and prosperity consistent with our values, consistent with our democracy. So thank you very much for your comments uh, and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>